0: If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Demon King, by Andrea Stewart. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 12 Mary woke up in her bed fully dressed. Sunlight streamed through the window. She felt rested and a bit remote. She rolled out of bed and stepped into the bathroom. As she undressed, she uncovered the metal bracelet on her arm and took a moment to study it. Gold on the outside, some dark metal on the inside, it was three inches wide and approximately half an inch thick. She tried and failed to slip even a single finger between her wrist and the bracelet. She tried and failed to slip it off over her hand. She studied it to see if there was some kind of hidden clasp. There wasn't. She studied the engraving around the bracelet and pressed the tiny images to see if it would open as her box did. Nothing worked. Finally, irritated, she took a shower wearing the bracelet. It chafed against her skin as though the metal were biting her. She came downstairs wearing a bathrobe, found Stuart sitting at her kitchen table drinking coffee. He was dressed in fresh clothes but she could see that he hadn't bathed yet. Not surprising since the only bath in the house was in her room. Good morning, he said. I'm glad you are awake. She held up her arm, displaying the bracelet. Take this off, she said. I can't, he replied. It will come off in thirteen days. He stood up collected a cup and poured coffee into it. He placed it on the kitchen table and scooted the milk jug and sugar toward her. She sat down, glared at him. It hurts me, she said. I don't see why you can't take it off. Because it's impossible, he said. How does your head feel? She stared at him. Did he really believe she would be put off so easily? She meant to have this thing off her even if she had to cut it off herself. You fell. Do you remember that? She thought about that for a moment. What did she remember? Throwing him into a wall for putting this infernal object on her arm. Moonlight, streaming down from heaven. Fury. The images she saw seemed surreal and out of order. Much seemed to be missing. I don't know, she finally replied. You aren't feeling well, he said. I thought I should watch you for a few days. No, she said. By no means was he going to hang around for several days she was going to cut this thing off her arm the second he left, and thus he would be leaving immediately. Get out, she said. We should at least have Ahmed take a look at you. Out. She found herself standing, pointing at the door. Still he remained seated, studying her like a bug under glass. Then she said something else, something in a language she didn't know. Then he was standing, eyes riveted on her, wary. She pointed at the door. He inclined his head slightly as if in a kind of bow, then moved toward the door. As soon as he was outside the door, he moved toward her. If you feel ill, call me, he said. Don't come back until you can remove this profanity, she said. Then he was gone and she was alone. She heard his car leave the gravel drive then stepped out into the sun-filled morning. Glancing at the sky she knew it was after eleven. She had slept soundly, no dreams had plagued her. She padded across the grass, not bothering to close the robe she wore. Once in the barn she reviewed her collection of tools. At the moment, she worked in clay, but like most artists she had explored several media. Metal sculpture required the use of so many things, including torches, metal cutters, pliers and saws. She had abandoned it as far too mechanical to be worth pursuing. Nevertheless, she had most of her metalworking tools affixed to the walls of the barn. Two hours later she was furious beyond words. The thing on her arm could not be cut off nor sawed through. It could not even be scratched. Solid gold was a soft metal yet it might as well have been steel for all the impact her tools made on it. Her arm, on the other hand, was another matter. It was bruised, pierced, and scratched from the several dozen slips she had made as she worked, left-handed, on the bracelet. Irritated, she threw the tools down and walked back into the house. Perhaps she could take her car into town and find someone with a torch to cut it off. Of course, that might well scorch her arm but that was a price she was willing to pay. The phone was ringing as she entered the house. Snatching it off the cradle she barked hello. Mary? Is that you? It took Mary a moment to identify the person on the other end of the phone. Margaret, the one in London. A woman. Well that was all for the best because a man Mary might have killed. It's me she managed in a relatively civil tone. I was wondering if you wanted to come for a visit, said Margaret. I thought you might. I'll be there. I'll see you at the museum, Mary said, then dropped the phone back into place. So slow, she thought. These people were so slow. Mary called a cab, went upstairs to dress, grabbed the bag she'd packed last night and was downstairs before the cab arrived. We just got a call that she's missing, said James. The security team somehow managed to let her get by. She's with the old woman, said Stuart. She called you? James asked. Stuart sighed and stared at the phone. Now that the stars were finally aligning, and all the ritual elements were falling into place, he could feel his patience with people ebbing. I just know she's there, he said. Track them down and keep an eye on them. I don't care about the crone but I don't want our girl to get hurt. Chapter 14 Margaret sat across from Mary at the trestle table in the pub. She nursed a shandy, and Mary drank red wine. Before them, a plate of bread and cheese were displayed. Some part of Mary appeared to find the food interesting, but the mechanics of eating were appalling. She drank wine instead. I called because I think I now know what you meant when you said you were in trouble, said Margaret. She looked older and somehow more frail. I've been looking into that man who came to Beltane. Stuart, said Mary. He is quite dangerous, I believe, said Margaret. I hope you haven't gotten into something you can't handle with that club you joined. Mary looked at her, wondered what she was talking about. I don't know what you mean, she said. You seemed so upset during your last visit. And I used the library to do some research. I found out his father was rumored to run the same kind of club. They were said to kill young women. The last report of a death was just a few years after Stuart was born. They found the woman in south London. She bled to death outside a church. Mary stared at her. What on earth was she talking about? I don't understand, she finally said. What is this to do with me? Well, you said Stuart made you join a club and I thought it might be the same one. Margaret was looking at her as if she were a stranger. They gave me something, Mary said holding out her arm. Can you take it off? She held out her arm displaying the bracelet and her badly damaged arm. I've tried everything. Margaret leaned forward, examined the bracelet, then reached out gingerly to touch it. Carefully she turned it around searching for a clasp or hinge. They gave this to you? she asked. It looks very old and very valuable. Yes, said Mary. But it won't come off and I don't like it. You should go to the police, said Margaret. Will they be able to take this off? Mary asked. Margaret stared at her. Slowly she drew away. I think the police will be able to help you, she said. All right, said Mary. Where are they? And she stood up. Police. Yes, that was the correct thing to do. Stuart had no right to put this thing on her, to refuse to take it off. Without another word Mary grabbed her bag and left the bar, striding out into the street determined to find a police officer as quickly as possible. As she reached the far curb, she heard Margaret calling for her and turned around. Margaret was chasing her, running as though her legs were made of thin sticks. Mary saw the car hit the old woman, saw her fly twenty feet into a lamp post. She saw the driver of the car, another old woman, scream, fly out of the car, run toward the crumpled creature that used to be Margaret. Mary waited for the image to make sense, for Margaret to rise or the woman to stop screaming. But instead people came running from several places, including inside the pub she had just left. They were shouting as well. Some were using their cell phones. They were calling the police, ambulances. Mary walked back across the street to try and understand. She looked into Margaret's vacant eyes. Her head was an empty house. There was no one there. She was still staring at Margaret when the police came. She turned to the officer closest to her, a young man, dressed tall in blue. It won't come off, she said, holding out her arm to reveal the bracelet. What? he demanded, staring at her as if she were mad. Step back, madam. They put it on me but it won't come off. She held up her arm. Wasn't he supposed to help people in trouble? Shove off, he said sharply. Leave us alone or I'll drag you in. He turned to look at Margaret, then moved to the old lady who was sitting in her car crying. Mary watched the officer go and studied the second police officer that was talking to other people. They were no help, she found herself thinking. None. She walked away from them. Something inside of her was shaking, frightened, but leaving Margaret with the men seemed to quiet it a bit. Where on earth could she go? Who would help her? David. He would help her, wouldn't he? Where was he? Japan. He was in Japan. Too far away to help. But she could make him come back. But he was just another man. Too many men, she found herself thinking. Men were the problem. She walked a long way, eyes scanning those she passed, searching for someone who might be able to help her remove the bracelet. Before long she found she was passing things that were familiar to her. She saw a park with ducks and a green pond. She walked into the park, watching the late afternoon light fill it with gold flags. She remained there until darkness fell until the moon rose in the sky. She found herself watching it with longing as it paraded across the sky. Then she was walking again. She had to go home but she didn't know how. When at last she stood outside a tall building, one with arched doors and long windows, she paused. There used to be someone here who could help. She entered the building, walked through it searching for her old friend. He could help her. Though she looked everywhere she couldn't find him. Instead, In a tiny alcove, a tiny grotto, she found a woman with tears rolling down her face, her feet illuminated by dozens of candles. Mary sat down on one of the long benches staring up at the woman and watched her tears fall. Can I help you daughter? came a voice. She turned toward it, seeing a man just inside the little temple. He was dressed in black and had a white notch in his collar. He was her father, she found herself thinking. I can't take this off, she said she held up her arm to show him. He moved forward to look. He spared it hardly a glance but did take time to study her. Are you well my dear? he asked. He sat beside her, a small man, fragile. She found herself listening to his heartbeat. It was irregular, faltering. I am a daughter of St. Anne's, she found herself saying. I grew up here. And I think I am lost. No, my dear. You are found. Then the old man took her arm and led her from the room with the crying lady. They left the church through the choir and she found herself walking down a familiar hall. The cloister, she said. Yes, said the father. I'll take you to the mother superior. She'll be able to help. Mary nodded. In these dark halls, among her sisters, she would be safe. They could remove this curse on her arm and free her from this misery. The priest made her wait in a chair in the hall as he summoned the mother superior. When the woman came Mary felt no recognition. This woman was not her mother. The woman led her into a Spartan office. You are a daughter of this place? She asked. I've only been here five years, but I don't know you. I was raised here, said Mary. They gave me my name. It took a moment to remember it. I am Mary Shepherd. The woman rose, went to a file cabinet. Then to another, and finally pulled a file from within it. Seating herself at the table, she turned on the lamp, squinting at the faded print. Mary Kathleen Shepherd, she said. Ah, yes, you were found as a newborn. Your mother had you in her arms when she passed away on our steps. No, said Mary. I was left here. I had no mother. The woman looked at her. I'm sorry, my dear. I spoke without thinking. Your mother died on the steps, and you were with her. It appears she took her own life. We accepted you as a foundling and perhaps, to spare you pain, no one mentioned how she died to you. It is quite accurate to say she left you on our steps. My mother was here? Mary asked. Something was shocking her out of the days she had been in. She could remember Margaret, watching her die. The story of the woman who had died on the steps of a church. My dear, I am so sorry. Please forgive me, said the Mother Superior. I should have been more careful. Mary stood up. She turned to face the woman and saw she was distraught. She raised her hand, peace daughter, she said. The woman fell back in her chair, eyes wide, mouth open. Holy mother, she said. Mary smiled and left her, walking out of the cloister and into the moonlight. Mary woke up on the bench where she had watched the ducks and geese late last night. The morning sunlight stumbled across her, prodding her in the eyes until she opened them. It took a moment to figure out where she was. Sitting up, she felt the band around her arm bang into the metal of the bench. What on earth had she been doing? The events of the day past were, like her memory of the ritual before, surreal. Had Margaret really died? What had that woman said about her mother? Mary could not decide what was real and what was a dream. She rose. She walked to the underground station at the corner of the park, jostling next to the other early morning riders in complete silence. Images flickered through her head like isolated frames of a movie. Nothing made sense. What she remembered couldn't be real. She got off the underground and got on a train bound for Cambridge. Sitting in the carriage she stared at the bracelet. It meant something, was important for some reason, but she could not recall what that reason was. Once in Cambridge she was reluctant to return home. She finally decided that the tremors in her hands had something to do with hunger. She honestly could not remember the last time she had eaten. It was certainly days ago. Food tasted odd, felt foreign in her mouth, but her utter dislike for it seemed to have faded a bit. Once she was finished with her meal, she found herself remembering Margaret's words. Something about Stuart's father had frightened her. Perhaps she should call Margaret and ask her to explain. Her mind shied away from this notion, images of vacant eyes filling her head. Of course, she told herself, that was insane. She simply could not have watched Margaret die. That must have been a dream. But nevertheless, she would not bother to call the woman. What could she say? I had a dream that you told me something about Stuart's father and then I watched you die? That was ludicrous. She left the tiny restaurant. Cambridge was a university town which was to say that the university was spread around and throughout the town rather than being a town surrounded by a university. It had several libraries, all of them linked to a networked computer system. If there were any information at all about Stuart's father, she would be able to find it here. With that aim in mind she walked to the closest library, the Music Annex, and waited for a place at a terminal. As the light faded from afternoon into evening she started searching for information on Stuart, his father and their society. Afternoon faded into evening before she found anything interesting. Like his father, Stuart was an archaeologist. His specialty was Britain from prehistory through the Middle Ages. He had a reputation for finding exceptional structures and for positing theories for their significance and symbology that other researchers seemed to find exciting. Arthur Trelevan, who never married, seemed to have acquired a son without explanation. Thirty years ago, the boy had simply been named his heir. When Arthur died just five years later, the boy was a very wealthy orphan. Stuart went to the finest schools and like his father excelled at his chosen profession. When he turned twenty-one, he came into his estate. Now, at thirty, Stuart was both wealthy and well-respected. Try as she might, Mary could find no mention of a club started by Arthur Trelevan, and no record of a woman found dead on the steps of St. Anne almost twenty-five years ago. Of course, not all such records would appear online. Some things could still only be found in newspapers. Did she care enough about this stupid delusion to pursue it further? She wasn't sure she did. She must have bumped her head during that ritual, had suffered a concussion, and thus had spent the past two days recovering. She felt better now, if not entirely well. It was time to go home. Stepping into the street, she summoned a cab. In under an hour, she was at her own front door. Ten minutes later she stepped out of her clothes, into a bath, and fifteen minutes after that she was in bed. She felt weary to the bone, weak, and a little ill. Sleep came suddenly. She was in darkness, running, being pursued. She heard voices calling for her, demanding her response. She ran to the pool, stared up into the night, and begged for the moon to save her, but it would not come down nor let her rise up. Then he was there. Stuart walked to her face cold and merciless. He dragged her from the chamber, through the darkness, not caring how she fought. She wrenched away, running from him, then heard him pursuing her again. She was awake, heart pounding. She turned on the light just as the door to her room opened. She screamed. Stuart stood in the doorway watching her, waiting for her to quiet. He seemed unconcerned by her distress, made no attempt either to approach or go away. At last she shuddered to a stop. We have been calling you for two days, he said. I apologize for coming over unannounced, but we've been very worried. Did you go somewhere? She stared at him, waited for him to say more. When he didn't, she lay back down in her bed, trying to still her racing heart. She must be going mad. She could not distinguish what was real and what wasn't anymore. Stuart was here to help her. He was concerned about her. There was no reason to fear him. He was her friend. I'll go if you like, he said, but entered the room, leaving the door open behind him. I just want to make sure you are all right. She held up her hand to stop his approach. I am fine, she said. Her voice shook as she spoke. Where have you been? He asked. Why didn't you answer the phone? I go where I wish to go, she said. Who are you to command me? He moved closer to the bed despite her warning, his eyes traveling to the metal band around her arm. She followed his glance to find her arm with deep black bruises from elbow to wrist, the uneven color punctuated now with oozing punctures and long, deep, scratches. What the hell have you done to yourself? Stuart sounded angry, as if she had done something stupid that she should be scolded for. I want this thing off. She said sharply. He knelt by the side of the bed, took her arm in his, examined it, then he said. I guess you do. She found she could hardly breathe. His touch was sure, confident, careful as he examined her wounds. Beneath the smell of soap, she could smell his skin, could feel his muscles flex as he moved. His eyes lifted to meet hers, and she felt him assessing her. As if in a dream she brought her other hand up to caress the back of his neck, drew him to her, their lips met. He shifted closer, followed the line of her jaw with a finger as he deepened the kiss. She lay back on the pillow something inside her stirring. He broke the kiss gently, stood up to look down on her. She felt herself flush with embarrassment. Two minutes ago, she had been terrified of him, and now all she could think of was how much she wanted him to make love to her. He returned to the doorway, leaned against it. You can't take it off, he said. No one can. It's there for another eleven days. What is it for? she asked, struggling back into a seated position aware that her face must be as red as a fire engine. It's just an ornament, he said. Stop trying to take it off. She shook her head. It hurts me, she said. You can see that it doesn't, he said. It's loose. Just leave it alone. Stay with me, she found herself saying. I'm afraid. He said nothing, studying her. Then he shook his head. He said something she didn't understand and fury washed over her like scalding water. Get out, she said, or I'll kill you. He turned into the darkness of the hall and she heard him going down the stairs. She lay in bed a long while looking at the white plaster of the ceiling. Rage ebbed into misery and she started to cry. She fell asleep with the light on. Mercifully, this time she had no dreams. David called early the next day. From the instant she heard his high babe. She found herself angry. Hello. She responded coldly. What use was he to her, there on the other side of the world? Images of him playing with paper and metal boxes all day long filled her head. I have been trying to call you, he said. Where have you been? Where have I been? She demanded. You and that woman, that assistant, I know exactly what you have been up to. He was having an affair. She could see the woman in her head, a pretty Asian girl. Well connected. A new wife to go with a new job. Lee? he asked. Don't call here again, she said, hanging up the phone. She left the house, striding toward the barn. The sound of the phone ringing followed her until the answering machine picked it up. Men, she found herself thinking, so stupid, so useless, so good for nothing. She started to work on the bracelet again, determined that this time she would have it off. Ahmed came as evening fell finding her in the barn where she still sat with her tools. He knocked on the open door. She turned to look at him, then returned to her work. When he stood a few feet away she looked up. Can I help you? she demanded. Actually, he said. I believe I'm here to help you. Stuart said you hurt your arm. I can see how. He hid his little black bag in one hand. She knew what was in it. More biting metal things. Nothing that would help. I want it off, she said as she continued trying to cut the bracelet off with a saw. The tin snips hadn't worked, but she thought she might want to try those again in a minute. I don't think it will come off, he said carefully, but perhaps I can stop it from hurting. I want it off, she said without pausing. May I look at it? he asked. She eyed him warily, then dropped the hacksaw and held up her arm. He moved forward to take it. Blood quickly covered his hands and he pulled a handkerchief from his pocket to dab at her arm. You'll need a tourniquet if you don't stop, he said. I can give you something to make it bother you less. She slipped out of her chair, reached up to pull his head down, brushed her lips against his. She held him when he would have pulled away, opened his mouth with her tongue. She felt his body shift, hand coming to her hip, drawing her toward him. No. Mary heard Stuart's voice and turned toward it. He said something she didn't understand, and somehow, she responded in the same language. The resulting conversation was unintelligible and angry, responses clipped. Mary, let Ahmed give you something to help the pain go away, said Stuart. Fine, she said. Perhaps if she did as they asked, they would leave her alone. A syringe appeared in Ahmed's hand and before she could say another word steel was biting into the vein of her good arm. She felt numbness slide into her shoulder, across her chest, into her head. Power seemed to coil up from the ground to fill her. Ahmed flew across the room to slam into the wall of the barn. He fell forward a moment later, blood welling from multiple wounds across his back. She had thrown him into the long nails on which she dried masks. Satisfaction filled her. She turned to Stuart, from behind her she heard her tools rattle, all the tools she had used to try and pry this device from her arm. They flew toward him, twisting and turning like living things. They flew past him into the darkness. He looked stern but not frightened. Without a word he entered the barn, collected Ahmed, and carried him out over his shoulder. She followed him, hurling epithets. Chapter 15 returned to her work. But one way or, or another this was, was coming The off. doctors cut the bloody clothing off his inert body. Then he put in a call to James letting him know he shouldn't approach Mary or allow anyone else to approach her. Some part of him felt guilty that his friend and aide was currently filled with holes from rusty nails, and another felt nothing but extreme irritation with the girl. It was hard to remember she was under the direct control of a deity. Even on her own, Mary was volatile, mercurial, and traumatized. He would have to be the one to handle her. He was built for it. But he wasn't sure he would be able to muster the patience required to make things better rather than worse. We all have our more unpleasant duties, he reminded himself. For Ahmed, duty meant holes in his lungs. For Stuart it meant trying to keep this runaway train on the tracks. For Mary it might shortly mean death at the hands of a very angry God. Once the doctors indicated they had Ahmed's situation well in hand, and the society's lawyers had arrived to lie about exactly how Stuart had come to bring the injured man in, Stuart returned to his bloody car. A couple of hours after Ahmed had tried to help her then flown back first into a wall, Mary sat on her couch, arms swollen around the bracelet, feeling feverish. She should go to the hospital, she found herself thinking. Someone would be able to help her there. As she contemplated calling either a cab or an ambulance, someone knocked on her door. She stumbled up and forward to answer it, finding herself unexpectedly face-to-face with a messenger. He had a box in his hands and numbly she signed for it with her left hand. She asked him to set it on the table, which he did. Then he left. She opened the box to find Margaret's purse on top of a stack of documents. There was a note from the museum saying she was the only one who had ever called or visited the woman at the premises and asking her to return these things to Margaret's next of kin. Mary fell back onto the couch. She saw Margaret flying through the air, her head striking a post, the vacant eyes. It hadn't been a dream. Margaret had died because she had tried to warn Mary, had tried to help her. Mary dropped the purse back in the box, and as she did her eyes fell to a photocopy of a news article. Knowing, even as she picked it up what it would say, she read the words. Mother and child found at St. Anne's. It was exactly as the mother superior had told her. Her mother had slit her own throat with a sharp knife. She had to get away or they would kill her. She stumbled up into her room. Her arm felt like a leaden weight attached to her body. It took a long time to change into jeans, a shirt and trainers. Pulling a cardigan over her arm made her cry out in pain. She found her purse reached in to retrieve her keys, and clambered back down the stairs. It had been more than a week since she'd taken her ancient mini-shopping. At first the engine refused to turn over, and each attempt to turn the key made pain shoot up her arm. After four tries the engine caught and she engaged the clutch. She draped her right hand over the steering wheel, used her left hand to put the car into reverse. She guided the car along the gravel until she came to the main road. She shifted into first drove the car forward, biting her lip as she had to turn the wheel with her right hand. It hurt to move her arm, to flex her wrist at all. She should go to a hospital. But she was afraid that Stuart would find her if she did. In a matter of minutes her Mini was flying along the road. When she came to a turnpike, she followed it onto the A road, then at the next roundabout she turned toward an M road. In half an hour she was on the highway, driving she knew not what direction. It didn't matter where she went, as long as they couldn't find her. How had she come to this? It must be fate, she found herself thinking. Her mother had died trying to save Mary, but the society had found her, tricked her, forced her to serve their purpose. And now she was running, as her mother had run, trying to flee a demon and all of his servants. Anyone she spoke to, who tried to help her would die. She drove into the sunset, following the sun as it curled to the west. She had to go somewhere so remote they would never find her. Her strength was failing. Instinctively she looked to the sky, looking for the moon. She saw it, a tiny crescent in the evening sky. Darkness fell and she was driving through a windmill farm, dozens of thin, two-story scythes slicing through darkness. She was cold, shaking, hungry, and she feared if she didn't stop driving soon she would crash. A roadside bread and breakfast motel emerged from the night she turned off into the cluster of buildings. It was an effort to get out of the car, to walk to the front door of the manager's home. She rang the bell. The hatchet-faced woman who admitted her had suspicious eyes. She demanded payment in full, all the while staring at Mary's swollen arm. She took the credit card she was handed and ran it immediately. When the charge went through the woman gave her two small towels, a bar of soap, a key, then walked her back to the front door. Cottage near the road, she barked, then shut the door in Mary's face. Dead bolts clicked into place. Mary let herself into the cottage. It was a single bedroom and bathroom decorated in green and white striped wallpaper. There was just a bed, a phone, a broken dresser and a television. The bathroom was bare except for a toilet, shower and mirror. Her first look into the mirror made her cry out. The apparition before had a face as white as snow, matted hair, eyes like dark pits. Agony was evident in every feature. Her arm was swollen, black, and several of the deep scratches were seeping fluid. She bathed the arm in the sink using warm water and soap, forcing herself to open the seeping wounds. When she was done, she twisted one of the towels around the broken flesh, then lurched back into the bedroom to fall on the bed. The phone rang. It kept ringing until she picked up the receiver. She pressed it to her ear, knowing who it must be. Mary? said Stuart. Don't hang up. She gasped. Against her will she kept the cold plastic against her head. How had he found her? How could he have known? I want you to listen to me, he said. There is nowhere to run. The only way to escape is to die. I don't think you want to die, do you? She shook her head. The thing inside you doesn't care if you are killed, he said. But we do. We can't force it to obey us, but maybe you can. You have to let us help. I'm afraid, she said. I want someone to help me. Then listen closely, he said. Margaret died because you broke your oath. You told her about us. She tried to interfere. You killed her. She screamed. You did. You took an oath. You swore to serve us. Events will conspire to destroy you and anyone who helps you break your oath. I have no more control over that than you do. You killed my mother, she said. No, she died because she tried to run away and because she took you away from us, he said. Everyone who helped her died. You belong to us. No, James and I are coming to collect you. You are going to let us help you before it's too late, he said. Ahmed is in the hospital because the thing inside you nearly killed him don't let it hurt us. And then he was gone. She returned the phone to its cradle, sat on the bed, tears streaming down her face. She'd never had a chance. They had pursued her, forced her to do as they wanted, bound her to some demon, and now they were coming to collect her. Ten minutes later there was a knock on the door. Before she could rise to open it, or bar it, the deadbolt was turning. Stuart stood in the doorway, a pale James behind him, "'Only you can restrain Our Lady,' said Stuart. "'He entered the room, bent to collect her in his arms like a child. "'He carried her out into the night, past her Mini, to the open door of the black Jaguar. "'He stepped into the car holding her on his lap. "'She lay her head against his chest, the soft wool of his overcoat pressing into her cheek. "'Waves of fury and fear rushed through her, frustration and misery fought for dominance. "'James sat in the driver's seat. The car started, then they were back on the dark road. In a matter of minutes, they had driven through the gates of the abbey and were passing through the woods. She cried out in dismay. Our lady wanted to be here, he said as she cried out in dismay. You were running away. She was coming home. Then he was stepping out of the car, lifting her up, and carrying her into the house. They put her in the same room she stayed in on her previous visit. Stuart set her on her feet just inside the bedroom door. Undress, he said. You'll find something to wear in the bathroom. Too weary to argue, she stumbled into the bathroom, shutting its door behind her. She found a new cotton nightgown, freshly laundered, hanging on a hook. She also saw towels on a heated rack near a glass-enclosed shower. She undressed, contemplated the shower, and gave in to temptation. Twenty minutes later Stuart entered the room to find her sitting on the floor, directly under the shower spray half unconscious. She was shivering though her skin was bright red from the hot water raining down on her. Did I say take a shower? he asked. He opened the glass door, reached in to turn off the water, and collected her limp body from the floor. He carried her naked to the turned-down bed. When he covered her with the down counterpane, she felt like she had been consumed by a cloud. We've called a doctor, he said. Try not to hurt this one. He left the room and returned with a heavy set white haired man wearing a well tailored business suit and a red tie. The man examined her arm, lifting it, probing the pockets from which fluid seeped. Any chance we can take this off? he asked, tapping the bracelet. No, said Stuart. The man nodded. Let's see if we can bring down the swelling with some antibiotics. Stuart nodded. The man took out a cell phone, said something unintelligible to the person on the other end of the line, then terminated the call. Drugs will be here in an hour. He looked at her. We should drain the pockets and start and four. Stuart nodded. We need towels, he said. Stuart stepped into the bathroom to retrieve two large white towels that the doctor subsequently laid under her arm on the bed. He pulled a syringe and a small vial from his bag. Mary felt something inside her stir. Take her arm, said the doctor. I'll use a local for the pain. We won't hurt the nice doctor, said Stuart to Mary. He sat on the bed beside her, took her arm at the elbow and wrist in a firm grip. The doctor stepped forward. She watched the very tip of the needle penetrate the skin, felt something coil inside, ready to spring. It will stop hurting in a moment, Stuart said. Let him work. Liquid fire poured through her arm leaving nothing except a fuzzy warmth in its wake. Before long the limb felt like it belonged to someone else. The doctor drew a blade through the swollen flesh near one of the deep scratches. A putrid yellow fluid spilled onto the white towels. The doctor pressed on the edges of the wound, used a needle and thread to close it. He repeated the procedure three more times with other areas on her arm. By the time he had finished his work, her arm was substantially less swollen, though more flurried. He applied plasters over the stitched areas, then stood up. The next time you decide to amputate your arm, young lady, I recommend that you use cleaner tools. He dropped his materials into his bag. I can give you something to help her sleep. No, said Stuart. Just something local for the pain. At this point James appeared with a bottle of saline and a bag full of some other clear medication. The doctor opened his bag and pulled out a sealed bag of clear tubing. A moment later he had set up an IV into her good arm. I'll send something over for the pain and fever, said the doctor. I'd also like to check on her tomorrow. Then he was gone. Stuart removed the soiled towels, adjusted her blankets, dragged a chair from near the fire to her bedside. Sitting in it, he propped his feet on the edge of her bed. Why are you doing this to me? she asked. What did I do to deserve this punishment? I knew where you were a decade ago knew what you would have to do and when. But you seemed happy at St. Anne's. I saw no point in not letting you pursue as normal a life as possible. He shifted, staring at his hands thoughtfully. Maybe I should have followed the advice I was given and brought you here to grow up. Mary's arm was starting to ache, and her head hurt. I still don't understand. What is the point of it all? What you need to do now is sleep, he said. You're exhausted and you're not thinking clearly. Then he said something in that language she didn't know again, and she felt something inside her relax a little. He spoke to it some more, and then, after a while she found she liked listening to his odd sing-song language. It became a lullaby that carried her off to sleep. Can she die from the infection? asked James. I mean, do you think the goddess will protect her? She could die from it, but we will make sure she won't, said Stuart. Fortunately, now that we have her back, the goddess won't feel the need to saw her arm off in order to get rid of that manacle. Was that in the society's history books? James asked. Has one of the consorts ever cut off their own arm to release Our Lady? That seems like something we should have known about. It shall be your job to update the records so our descendants know what to expect going forward, said Stuart. Generally the consorts are too well watched, too well schooled, and too well disciplined to be in a position to do the kind of damage she has done. She's not in her right mind, said James. That's why she spoke to Margaret. Mary didn't break her oath. That's why she is not dead. She's not dead because Acheron needs her alive, corrected Stuart. Voice recording and story copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond 5. Find more great stories at audioion.com.